And we'll be talking about the handwriting on the wall. On September 11, 2001, many of us recall the terrorist attacks that happened at the trade centers in New York City. And following their attacks, it became apparent, as it is apparent today, that you and I had to live in a state of vigilance, as there is always the possibility of future attacks on American soil. In short, the handwriting is on the wall, and we will have to deal with terrorism from now on. In Daniel chapter 5, we read about a man by the name of Belshazzar, and he's described as the king, and actually he was a co-regent king with his father. He was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 5, well, of course, Nebuchadnezzar was that great king of Babylon. But uh, Daniel chapter 5, what we have here before us is a picture of the demise of the Babylonian kingdom. And ultimately, what God was saying to Belshazzar was this. The handwriting is on the wall. The handwriting is on the wall. And what you need to understand is that you're done. You are finished. And so, first of all, I want us to examine our text in Daniel chapter 5, and I want us to try to make some application to it and to our own lives. The first thing that we read about is a great feast that has been prepared. Look at verse 1, if you will. The Bible says that Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Really, this was an, an act of defiance on the part of Belshazzar. It was a kind of in-your-face type attitude, that uh, gesture that he was making to the God of heaven. It was so in verse 5, we have some fingers that appear, and then ultimately what happens here is that these fingers write something on the wall. Now, notice verse 5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, what is to transpire here in verse 6 and following is fear on the part of Belshazzar. And the Bible is going to talk about how his knees had knocked together. Sometimes we talk about somebody who's, who's actually literally shaken to the point where their knees knock. And we might even uh, claim that that's happening to us at one time or another. I was so scared my knees were knocking, right? And so what is happening here is when Belshazzar saw this hand appear and write something on the wall. Now look at verse 6. 
Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him and his lords were astonished. Verse 10 and following, what's going to happen here is that Belshazzar is going to find out his fate, that he's done, he's finished. Daniel was going to be summoned and the queen reminds Belshazzar that there was a man that had interpreted some dreams for his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 11, here's what the text tells us. That there is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. When whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father the king I say thy father made master of the magicians astrologers the Chaldeans and the soothsayers for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Ultimately, what is going to happen here is that Daniel will appear before Belshazzar, and he's going to interpret his handwriting or this handwriting that, was, that he saw on that wall. And one of the things that Daniel is going to say to Belshazzar is this. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, was lifted up with pride. And because of that, God humbled him. And the problem with Belshazzar is like the problem with so many people in our world even today and has been in previous generations, is that people fail to learn from the past. That history keeps repeating itself. Now, this history is about to happen again. Belshazzar should have taken knowledge. He should have taken note of what had transpired in the life of his grandfather and thus learned from that. But notice verse 19. Daniel said, And for the majesty that he gave him, him, all people, nations, and languages, trembled and feared before him whom he would slew and whom he would be kept alive and whom he would set up and whom he would put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. Now I want you to listen to verse 22. 
And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart, thou that knowest all this. And so here's a situation where Daniel is now going to interpret the handwriting on the wall. Notice verse 24. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and his writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, teko, yefarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God had numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Teko, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a, a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. In verse 30, though, in the night that Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. And so ultimately we read of the demise of the Babylonian kingdom and the rise of the Medes and the Persians. What really God was saying to Belshazzar is that the handwriting is on the wall. You're done. You're finished. There will be no more. Nobody's going to put up with it, and I'm going to make sure of that. It's over with you, and that's exactly what happened. What then is the application of that to us today? How can we learn from the handwriting on the wall so that we don't repeat history and be in that same position? What is it that we can learn from the handwriting on the wall? Number one, I think that you and I can learn individually that the handwriting is on the wall if we are alien sinners. If we have never obeyed the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the handwriting is on the wall that we are lost. We are without hope. And I hope that many can understand that. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, we are without hope and without God. Paul said in Romans 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. Now, whether we like it or not, we can't change the fact that the handwriting is on the wall, that we are living in a state of doom, and thus we are lost. Now, we can do something about that. We can do something. The only way to alter that course would be to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ to put our faith and our trust in Jesus as the very son of the living God, John 8, 24. To repent of every sin that we had in our lives, to be immersed in that water for the remission of our sins, Acts 2, 38. To then be added to the Lord's church and then to continue to doing and being faithful to the will of God. And when we do that, we have now come into a covenant relationship with the Lord. In Ephesians 2, and verse 12, Paul, having just spoken of those who were without hope and without God in this world, he said in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are now made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now that that blood of Christ is now availing in your lives, you are saved, you are cleansed, you are re a redeemed child of God. Let me also suggest that from an individual standpoint, 
that the handwriting is on the wall if you are an apostate. That is, if you have obeyed the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and yet you have gone back into the world of sin and sorrow and sickness, the handwriting is on the wall that you'll be lost as well. How do I know that? It's because of what Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. He said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better, better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Peter is saying here that if you have chosen to go back into the world, it's because of tribulation or persecution or because of the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of riches. Well, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 13, that if you've gone back into the world, you are in serious trouble. You don't want to find yourself in that position come judgment day. He's saying the handwriting is on the wall. You're going to have a date with destiny. You're going to, ha to stand before the God of heaven. You know, it was the Hebrew writer who said that those who have gone back into the world, uh, those who have left the Lord, he, he said that, that they have trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified as an unholy thing. And they have done despite unto the Spirit of grace. You see, in reality... They have got some serious trouble, and they got themselves into that trouble. The handwriting is on the wall. If you're not a child of God, if you're not a faithful child of God, you've got some serious trouble coming your way, because ultimately, you will have to stand before God and give an account of it. A second lesson is that congregations need to see that the handwriting is on the wall. If their members have left their first love. You know, when Jesus had surveyed the seven churches of Asia, you know, one of the problems characteristic of the saints in Ephesus is that they had left their first love. Now, he said in Revelation 2 and verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. There have been a lot of people that have analyzed Revelation 2 and verse 4, and they've talked about what it means to leave one's first love. To some, it might simply be that a person's love for the Lord has, has been waned. It might be that a person's love for the lost has diminished. Whatever the case, one thing is true, is that the saints in Ephesus here, they have left their first love, and the handwriting is on the wall if you will. Jesus was saying to that church, listen, unless you somehow turn this ship around, I'm going to put your candlestick out. You need to make some changes. There needs to be repentance or otherwise I'm going to put your candlestick out. Now here's a question. Where's the church at Ephesus today? Where is it? It is now history. Something happened to those people. And then in Revelation 3 and verse 16, we read about the church at Laodicea. The Bible speaks of the Laodiceans as being people who were lukewarm. 
They were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm, right? And because of that, Jesus said, I will spew thee out of my mouth. They had the idea that spiritually speaking, they were okay. Just like Belshazzar, right? He thought he was okay. Do you really think that when Belshazzar made this great feast that he thought that his kingdom was coming to a crashing end? No, he was living it up and he had everybody else living it up with him. Here's what the Lord said to the Laodiceans, verse 17 of Revelation 3. He says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, Jesus said to that church, listen, there needs to be a change. You need to turn this ship around. The handwriting is on the wall. Can you not see it? What else do I have to do? Do I have to spell it out to you? You see, they needed to listen very carefully. That the church is the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has to be involved in the work of Almighty God. He would have rather them been hot or cold than to be lukewarm. But they chose to be lukewarm. They thought everything was okay as long as they weren't to the extreme of one or to the extreme of the other. We have before us a responsibility of evangelism, edification, and benevolence. Those are the three primary works of the Lord's church. And unless we are on fire, unless we have a conviction and a courage to take the gospel to the lost, to engage in the work of the church, the handwriting is on the wall. We are lukewarm. God can put our candlestick out. Go back and read about that church of Laodicea and ask that same question as well. Where's the church of Laodicea? Where is it? Where will be the church at Central here in Clearwater be, spiritually speaking, 25 years from now? Or 50 years from now? 100 years from now, if the Lord is willing, and the Lord delays His coming, where will this congregation be? And so we talk about the handwriting is on the wall. And the handwriting is on the wall as individuals. If you're not a Christian... Or if you are an unfaithful Christian, the handwriting is on the wall, congregationally. If we are not what we're supposed to be, if we're not faithful and productive in the work of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified that they bear much fruit. There's the key word, much. Not just some fruit, not just at least a little bit of fruit, but much fruit, John 15, 8. God is glorified in the church, Ephesians 3, 21. Here's a question that you and I really need to answer. Are we doing those things that bring honor and glory to God Almighty? The third lesson, what about from a national perspective? Is it possible that the handwriting is on the wall as we think about the state of our country today? Is the handwriting on the wall? Babylon was a very powerful nation. The Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians. Assyria had ultimately gave way to Babylon and God used the Chaldeans. 
He used the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom, to literally defer the city, to destroy the temple, to deport the poor people of God into captivity. And 70 years later, 70 years later, God would allow his people to return to their homeland and God would use a man by the name of Cyrus to lead the people, to lead the charge, to give the edict in about 539 to 538 BC. Well, Babylon was a great nation. It was a powerful nation. But Babylon was going to fall, and Babylon did fall. What about our nation today? Did you know that at one time in the history of this country that we were called, and I'm going to see, use this term loosely, that we were called, quote, unquote, a Christian nation? It's hard to believe today, isn't it? Did you know that sociologists today tell us that we are living in a post-Christian nation? The first time I heard that, I shuddered to think that our nation has moved that far, morally speaking. It's obvious that we live in a country today that has embraced any number of philosophies and thoughts contrary to the very teaching of God's Word, the Bible. What we have today is misplaced values, don't we? I think about the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 5 and verse 20 when he said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What was the problem? They were confused. They were confused. We live in a day and a time in which many people in our society are confused. They don't know if a boy is a girl or a girl is a boy. But it's pretty much easy to, to see. They literally do not know which way is up. What is right from wrong. Truth from error. Good and evil. They literally do not know. And so the question is, is the handwriting on the wall? Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. But I know this, not too long ago, it was reported that 62% of the people living in this country favor abortion. 62%. Since 1973, millions upon millions of innocent babies have been killed. Yes, I use the word killed by abortion. Let me just ask this question. Why is it not wrong for a physician to terminate the life of an unborn fetus in the womb, even after that fetus had developed over several months of time? Why is it that condoned in our society? Why is that condoned in our country? But if a woman were to take a knife and begin stabbing herself in the stomach, and if it were to kill that baby in the womb, she would be charged with murder. Tell me, what's the difference? There is no difference. Is that not the height of hypocrisy? There was an article in the newspaper about a man who lived up north. He was an auto worker, 89 years of age, I believe. He was deported to Germany because records indicate that he was responsible for being an accessory or an accomplice to 29,000 deaths during Nazi Germany. He was deported. 
Now, in no way am I minimizing what this man has done. But people will get all up in arms. And they're going to want to see justice prevail. As a matter of fact, one Jewish individual said, For these people, there can be no mercy. We don't want any mercy for those people. But you know what? We don't think anything about an innocent child being murdered. Here's what the Bible says. God hates the hands of them that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6, 17. Might want to write that one down. Is that the handwriting on the wall? Over 11 million babies, according to the world of meters of info abortions, have been murdered so far since January 1st of this year. All sanctioned by the courts of our land, and nobody says a word. You tell me, is the handwriting on the wall? What about the homosexual movement? I don't care how people try to defend it. The Bible says that those who engage in homosexual practices shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what God said. That's what God said. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 through 11, that there's no way you and I can legitimize the union of two men or two women in the state of marriage. I never in my wildest dream believed that this country would condone same-sex marriages. And yet, it is happening, and it has been happening for some time. You know that it wasn't long ago, wasn't that long ago that they allowed same-sex marriage, that they had to rewrite the laws of divorce as well. Because those that are the same sex would eventually didn't like each other and they would have to get a divorce because they were married according to the laws of the land. Now we have to rewrite the laws of divorce because it didn't include that. But why? Because those of the same sex did not want to be married anymore. If you read Matthew chapter 19, you will see Jesus talks about marriage between the husband and the wife, the male and the female. If it was to be any other way, God would have made sure that Matthew, who wrote by inspiration, would have included, well, in verse 10 of Matthew 19, right after he just said what he said in verse 9, that if the male, you know, and then after the male and the female and after the female, no. He didn't have to write that. Why? Because from the beginning, it was not so. I don't care what anybody says. God never, ever condoned the uniting of two individuals of the same sex. And I don't care what anybody tries to tell you. It is sin. And it's always been sin. And it will continue to be sin as long as the Word of God is around. And even if the Word of God wasn't around, man has tried to destroy it for many years, it's still a sin. It can be repented of. I love the souls of those people who have chosen to be in that lifestyle. And I want them to change. And they can. And I have known many that have changed. And they're better for it today. It was the psalmist who said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, Psalm 119, 89. 
God's word does not change. Men may change. The thinking of man may change. But the word of God is unchangeable, unalterable. And so I ask you, is the handwriting on the wall? What about the violence in our world, in our schools, in our workplaces? Let me tell you where the problem begins. And the problem begins and it ends with mothers and fathers that have not taken to heart what Paul said in Ephesians 6 and verse 4 when he declared, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's the problem. You've got mothers and fathers that have abdicated their responsibility. Children are running around doing what they want, when they want, where they want, with whomever they want, with no kind of parental supervision. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6.1. Who is going to teach our children what is right and wrong? Our schools? Well, in some places, they're not even having schools because of the COVID. So who's teaching them now? Who's going to teach them the truth from error? The right from wrong, the good and the evil. Bear in mind, the schools also teach evolution as a part of life. I don't want them teaching my children. If we have to be taught that we are the descendants of an animal, who's to say that we shouldn't live like animals? And some people are living like animals. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. And in verse 26, God created man in his own image. We are the products of an almighty God. When I was growing up, to my knowledge, we didn't have a problem with people bringing handguns to school. They left them in their trucks in their gun rack because they were going to go hunting afterwards. They never brought it into the school. They would have never thought of bringing it into the school. We had pocket knives. And we were able to take those into school, but we'd have never thought about pulling out a pocket knife and stabbing our teacher. And I know there's some teachers in here who are glad that we didn't. We would have never thought of that. We didn't have some of the foolishness that's going on in our schools today. We had people chew gum. We had people talking, and it was up to the teacher whether or not it was okay in the classroom. There was to be no running in the hallways or we would be chasing for that. But we didn't have some of that same foolishness. Look at our judicial system. It has become a joke. I'm sorry, but it is a joke nowadays. The Bible says in Romans 13 that those who are in positions of power are not to bear the sword in vain. Why did God set forth or, or legislate capital punishment? Because it was a deterrent to evildoers. In our society today, we can't keep enough prison houses built to incarcerate all the inmates. Why is that? Because there's no deterrent to their own wrongdoing. In fact, they, today, they're getting a slap on the hand and they're let go. And then they go out and do the same things that they did that brought them into the prisons. And you've seen it on the news. I don't have to tell you this. If we're just going to get a slap on the wrist for probation, do you really think that that's going to curb the crime and the violence in our country? Do you really think that's going to make a difference? Our judicial system is upside down. 
Is the handwriting on the wall? What about drug abuse, alcoholism in our country? The Bible says that wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 20, verse 1. You know what I see in our country? I see a lot of foolish people destroying their lives by the glistening of wine, of drugs, alcohol. You show me somebody that uses chemical substances, alcohol, I'll show you a fool. Because that's what the Bible says. Is the handwriting on the wall? You tell me. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, as Amos had said in Amos 7:14. but I can see the handwriting on the wall. We have some serious troubles in our society and in our country today. And what, what's it going to take on our part is for us to take the gospel to those in the world. The only thing that's going to save this country, the only thing that's going to turn this country around is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16. Washington, D.C. is doing its best to change the course of our country. I'm here to tell you that the lawmakers in Washington, they don't get it. They don't know what's going on. Listen, this is the book right here that can turn our nation around, not the government. Our 40th president of the United States of America said at one time that government's first duty is to protect the people, not run their lives. We've got the cart before the horse when the government starts to run our lives. When you look at the corruption at the, at the realm of politics, don't tell me you put your faith in those people. I'd rather put my faith in God and in His Word as the only thing that's going to change the course of this nation. Is the handwriting on the wall? You bet. And I'm not a betting man. My prayer is that as a nation of people, we will turn this ship around before it's too late. And I can't do it all by myself, but every one of us can do it. You have close friends, you have family members, you have new friends. Let's talk to them, let's show them the way, let's help them understand the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I can look back and I can see kingdoms that were powerful in those last days, I mean, those days gone by, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And guess what? Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, nations rise, nations fall. But the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth to whomsoever he will. Daniel 4, 32. We need to think about it. Is the handwriting on the wall. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, the handwriting is on the wall. You need to make some changes in your life today. Tomorrow may be too late. I hope that you understand how important it is that you make that change by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8, 24. By repenting of those sins, Luke 13, 3, Acts 17, 30. By making that good confession of the sweet name of Jesus, 
Romans 10, 9 and 10, and Matthew 10, 32, and then putting the Lord on a baptism for the remission of your sins. The forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2, 38, and then to be added to the Lord's church. To then live faithfully to the will of God. Is the handwriting on the wall? Only you know that.